Hi, this is the HSJ Health Check podcast, and I'm your host, Annabelle Collins. With NHS chief executives reporting intense pressure from the centre to balance the books, on this episode, we're going to take a closer look at NHS financial planning, covering the ongoing debate around productivity, ICS finances, and what a focus on finance above all else could mean for other pressing priorities. To do this, I'm joined by Henry Anderson, Lawrence Dunhill, and Dave West. I think a good place to start is perhaps the summit of NHS leaders that HSJ hosted at the end of last week, as, as Henry and Lawrence and myself, we were all there. Um, just to add, it was a it was a Chatham House event, meaning we can't name anyone. But what did you hear from delegates about finance at the moment in the NHS and, and the current level of pressures? Hi, yeah, I think um, this single uh, biggest takeaway for me was how many people were saying that that finance was the number one issue. Um, one CEO said, uh, "Back to a place where cash is king again." Um, so perhaps a kind of you know, we've got through COVID and there was obviously a period where money was no object. Um, sort of a transitional year last year, and this year is very much a place where NHS England's number one priority is finance and, and balancing the books. Um, and from that, which I'm sure we'll get into later, the the sheer amount of pressure now being exerted on on um, trusts and ICS is by NHS England, um, because they still haven't been able to get to a point where the service as a whole has a balanced financial plan uh, for the current financial year. Does this tally with what you were hearing at the summit, Lawrence? Yeah, definitely. And uh, Henry, Henry wrote a, a couple of months ago that the, the first draft financial plans were a six billion deficit, which was much bigger than at that stage in previous years. And they've subsequently got that down to about three billion. And so they're, they're, they're trying giving it another go to try and reduce it even further. And um, yeah, so from some of the conversations I had, apparently, on an, at a national level, Julian Kelly and his team are, are kind of presenting quite a supportive front and and betraying the the, the right sort of behaviours apparently. But then in the regional teams, the the regional some of the regional teams are obviously under pressure to deliver the right numbers for their regions. And a, a, quite a few people said some of the behaviours are getting uh, nasty in in some places. And so you know, trust sort of being reminded of their of their legal duty to break even, which as far as I'm aware, that's that's been the case for the last 10 years, but there've been dozens of trusts that have uh, been in deficit every year without without being sort of reminded of their obligations in that in that sort of language. And we've we've spoken, um, I think it was a few months ago, about the state of ICS finances at the moment. And Henry, you've written about how I think it was two thirds of ICS ICSs were expecting to be in the red. They weren't expecting to balance their books. Um, what what are things looking like for ICSs at the moment? I imagine I suppose it's very much linked to trust finances, but is that pressure being felt throughout the NHS? Yeah, it's interesting. Um... When I wrote the story about the three billion deficit, and that was in theory meant to be the final plan submission, um, but obviously because it contained a deficit, and there is this, you know, theoretical or legal um, duty to break even, NHS England has basically said no, that's not good enough. You've got to go again. So, I think the, the thing that struck me from chatting to ICS leaders and finance chiefs is that a, a lot of them 
still have quite a long way to go in terms of, of where the deficit they may, may say for you know they were on more than 100 million pounds deficit in the in the um first submission they got that down to say you know 90 80 million um but they are kind of stumped on how to make up that remaining gap um and it is difficult because you know they have to have conversations with trust and it's very dependent on the relationship between the trust and the ics um as to whether they can kind of squeeze out extra savings but yeah there was a real sense of um of not knowing how they were going to bridge this remaining gap um in some areas and I, I think this has been happening to trust as well as the ics's but it's a sort of um the, the kind of classic carrot and stick approach so nhs england have been saying oh we'll give you you know some extra money um to bring down the deficit if then you commit to finding a similar amount in savings so they're trying to kind of shake out um, more savings that way but yeah i think the, the key kind of takeaway with the ICS is, is is still one of uncertainty. At this point a month ago, there was probably more confidence that they'd be able to get the plan signed off. Um, but having spoken to people in the last sort of couple of weeks, uh, that seems to have withered away. I, th I think what's still an issue as well in, in a lot of places is right the way up the tree from sort of from ICBs to the regional teams to NHS England's national team and to the TH and even the Treasury. Everyone's aware that there are still some quite large cash balances sitting in certain parts of the provider sector. And it, we, Henry and I have written about this before and we're due, we're due to do another sort of sweep to see what the complete position is. Um, and so we're not quite sure what's been used up in 22-23, but, but uh, I, I know in some systems, for example, people are kind of looking around at certain trusts and thinking, well, there's a, there's a lot of cash sitting there that isn't really doing any work and we are really struggling as a system to hit our recurrent numbers. So can we find a way to try and squeeze that cash out to help get us over the line uh, in the coming year? It's Yeah, it's interesting because it's, it's it is a slight false economy isn't it because it's using this cash on a one-off basis to cover a um, gap between recurrent you know it's a it's a classic thing of like dipping into your savings to to cover day-to-day -day costs so it will only postpone the problem it won't it won't fix it exactly yeah it's, it's a short it's a short-term fix but from the treasury's point of view they're thinking well we, we gave out all this money during covid and we don't just want it sitting there not doing anything but trust leaders are viewing it as sort of a safety net, I guess. They don't really want to tap into it. Is that the... Yeah, of course. Yeah. They want it to sit there as long as they can possibly leave it there for and, and probably don't like anyone talking about it very much. Rather hoping that it had been forgotten about. Um, I think this maybe um, links quite nicely to the, um, a story you wrote this week, Henry, about kind of going, OK, so what, what, what are trusts being asked to do? What are they doing? um to to make savings and you've reported and you can um you know go into to more detail but um trusts are being told to hold down staffing which is it's you know considering the context at the moment it's a pretty shocking ask at face value yeah it, 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 it's really interesting because it does seem to go against the kind of the whole grain of you know everything you hear about is, is the nhs have not having enough staff but yeah it seems that um you know, it, it seems to vary depending on where you are in the country. Um, some ICSs in their board papers have said 
explicitly that there is a national expectation that there is no workforce growth um, in 23-24. Um, other places have said it's not explicit, but the only way you can get your financial plan to kind of stack up um, is by not having increases of staff. Um, and, and, and it is, you know, they are, it's probably important to note that they are talking about removing planned increases of staff in generally speaking. There were one or two people I spoke to who actually said in certain areas we will have to cut staff um, to make it add up. But yeah, th this this seems to be a kind of the direction of travel that NHS England is pushing trusts in. Um, yeah, it apparently is very much linked to the kind of the wider debate about NHS productivity. Um, in kind of very simplistic terms, it's this idea that, well, you're doing less activity than you were before COVID, but you have extra staff. So in NHS England's point of view, you know, shouldn't you fix that before you start kind of adding on more staff effectively? Certainly, if you read um, Steve Black's columns that he, that he writes for HSJ, he's an NHS data analyst. Um, he, he argues very strongly and pretty convincingly that the the NHS doesn't it's, it's not a it's it's not a workforce problem that's at the heart of the NHS's issues it's more a coordination of staff problems so it's got the wrong people in the it's got people in the wrong places uh, and if you if you look at the workforce number since pre-covid they've they've gone up by uh, by, by a lot I think 60,000 more um clinicians now in the service a 10 percent increase um and in in some areas like a and e there's been there's been a really really steep rise over the last sort of six seven years which hasn't helped improve performance because you've got those staff in the wrong in the wrong place they they need extra people in social care and community services because it's a it's a blockage problem it's not a shortage of staff in a and e problem um and 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 the centre are certainly aware of this, and and uh, Liverpool University Hospitals is one trust where it has been scrutinised quite a bit for its staffing increase during the pandemic. They they were recruited about a thousand extra staff, and um, the, without any sort of proportionate increase in activity, and PwC went in and did a report on on this that was commissioned by the ICB. And some of the findings in that report, I'm told, led to um, led to the centre wanting to get rid of the chair at Liverpool, Sue Musson, and and they that was after her first term, and then they brought in David Flory in in her place, who's uh, known to be very he's an accountant by background and known to be very tough on the finances. I think I've, I've just I would say something about the productivity issue. I've done a little bit of work about this and. And, and we, just to say that I think it is still quite ill understood really what has happened um, because yet yeah, clearly a lot less activity was done during those COVID years and less activity is still being done actually um, uh, in certain typically uh, less counted activity so fewer elective um, you know ordinary elective operations are still being done although there's you know really hard work going on to try and get that back to pre-COVID levels also actually emergency attendances and admissions have uh, not gone up in the way that they were pre-COVID not returned completely to what they were pre-COVID and certainly not returned to the pattern of growth that, that was happening pre-COVID which is like 
all very strange, isn't it, really? Because why would emergency um, activities still be down? There may, um, but, uh, and at the same time, staff have gone up. I think I'm slightly not 100% convinced by the, the figures that staff growth went up like really, really much faster during COVID because it was already going up since about 2014-15, clinical staffing, nursing. I think after the, the early 2010 to sort of 14 austerity years when many staff groups did decline or stay very static, since then actually there has been growth and then that got a bit quicker during COVID. But the, the data is actually not incredibly good or or incredibly well understood because, for example, the the, the NHS digital figures don't include agency um, staffing. So, um, but you can see why um, you know people who are concerned about the finances and concerned about productivity are saying, well, why staffing can you continue to go up and you're you know doing less widgets, which is the very basic product equation which is normally used for productivity. You know, activity as measured divided by the the inputs being mostly the staff or the funding and funding. You know, we have to acknowledge has gone up pretty steeply during went up pretty steeply during COVID as well, even though now it's it's coming out again but there's some really confusing things about all this you know length of stay we did a piece in december i think showing that length of stay in hospitals actually gone up by about 15 percent so the amount of like hospital bed days i you know people who need looking after in hospital is basically the same it's not it's not gone down um and many would say are more acute uh, acutely ill many people spending very long time in emergency departments because they because they can't get admitted so that you know the number of 12 hour trolley weights is like vastly higher so there's lots of people being looked after there the other thing hospitals would argue is that there's lots of people um be receiving same day emergency care and things like that different pathways um, virtual wards and stuff which are not properly counted in the in the current uh, activity figures um, you know as as we know them as the sort of standard rtt or emergency care data sets so there might be a lot of care going on we don't really know about um, and um, and so there's a bit of a mystery you know absent staff absence rates remain higher than they were before covid so it is quite risky although you can see why they're doing it and which problem really needs to be understood it is kind of risky to say well look it looks like your productivity's gone down so you need to sweat some staff um because it may just pile additional pressure on the current staff who again is very good evidence or you know certainly um certainly very widespread belief uh, which is not the same as good evidence i'm sure uh, steve black and others will point out but very you know widespread suggestions look at the staff survey that morale people have very low morale and are feeling overworked and um, and are leaving and that's really what the nhs doesn't need is more people to leave it also um you know underlines this point that the message from the centre which has been going out of don't recruit any more staff or, sorry don't add to your permanent staffing establishment um uh, seems to contrast with with messages like around the long-term workforce plan which nhs england and and others have been very clearly saying we need to expand the number of uh, nurses and doctors and other clinical staff you know over the short medium and, and long term uh you know or particular care areas of care like midwifery where there's you know, a, a care quality, a major care quality concerns, and a, a very clear plan to increase clinical staffing. So, how can how can that 
you say that on the one hand and on the other hand tell trusts to hold their establishment level is in at some levels it is possibly um, you know you can possibly reconcile the things because people do have vacancies so they can still fill the vacancies even if they're holding the establishment level you can do things you could think about agency staffing well actually there's a lot of agency staffing being used so if we replace that and then actually it might be more efficient um, but there is still a danger and in, in some trusts in some areas it will be interpreted as simply freeze your you know freeze your, your vacancies don't don't recruit and um, which which does is potentially dangerous. Although the other thing that I think is very badly understood is really what what has happened to the total funded establishment since 2000 and uh, you know, over the last five or, or 10 or 15 years, um, because, you know, it's interesting in, in Henry's story about these staffing issues, people, you know, immediately people often raise the, the spectre of, of, of mid staffs and the fact that funding and constraints led to, you know, understaffed wards there and uh, in the 2000s and to, to sort of terrible care quality going on. What happened around 2013-14 when the Francis Review was published and Jeremy Hunt um, successfully sort of uh, successfully uh, brought about a whole series of changes to promote um, care quality and and staffing was the introduction of safer staffing, very safe staffing, sort of particularly in nursing tools, which enabled and empowered nursing leaders, you know, nursing directors to set the establishment that they required to create at least a, a more safe, um, you know, more high quality level of care on the wards than had been the case before and pushed up. That is when, you know, that is actually when there was a kind of turnaround in the mid 2000, around 2014, 15, I think, in the number of nursing staff that, that, that are working in, in hospitals, at least, is, is probably doesn't apply uh, well to, to community services and, and mental health, which have you know suffered more. But in hospitals, there has been an increase since about 2014, 2015. It is really ill understood whether, despite sort of quite a lot of data being collected, but not really used by the looks of it on how well staffed are hospital wards since since then. Um, so unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be very well known, but there, there does seem to be still quite a high level of trust in that the, these, that the, uh, they say for nursing approaches are, are still being used. Does it then feel a bit hasty to 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 kind of grasp onto something like productivity that Dave, as you've explained, isn't isn't that well understood and say, well, we have more staff, but we're not more productive. That feels quite reduct a reductive thing to do. Yeah. I mean, in like Treasury, you know, auditor terms, it is simply true. So the NHS does have to deal with that. It, you know, it has there is less that the definition is counted activity divided by input, you know, staff or cost. So it just is true. So you can't doesn't sort of help for national national NHS or leaders or anyone else to sort of stamp their feet and say it's not true because it kind of is but it's like but they have to get underneath it and understand why and what's happened and yeah it could be um it could be counterproductive to to take too much action off the back of it um without properly understanding it first it does yeah it, it's kind of, kind of quite a crude mechanism um as a way of achieving that if you you know like yeah, on that very sort of simplistic calculation, if you, if you, you know, reduce the uh, cut the amount of inputs and then and carry out the same level of activity, then your, you know, your productivity productivity has gone up. But uh, you know, as we know, they are trusts are struggling to carry out activity, so it's not necessarily, mm -hmm. I think, as simplistic as as people might first assume. And then obviously, yeah, it's difficult to untangle how much of this is being done 
how much is a productivity thing and how much is just a general kind of oh we need to balance the books sort of thing um and then see yeah what which priorities then end up being downgraded I, the, it was interesting what you were saying about the, the pressure to kind of grow staff in certain areas because one one um chief finance officer i spoke to was saying that you know on one hand um nhs england sort of um is saying you know you need to increase uh, mental health staff, maternity staff. Um, then the finance team is saying, oh, no, you actually need to hold down overall staff numbers because you need to save money. So there's those mixed messages um, coming from the centre. That reminds me that um, a couple of people have said that if they are told to hold um, the total establishment static, but obviously they know they need to increase the number of midwives, they feel they need to you know, recruit any registered clinicians they can basically any you know warm bodies then they're going to want to recruit them almost these are highly likely to to lead to people to plan a reduction in general management posts uh, which um which actually many people and, and sort of what lawrence was saying earlier about actually some of this is about coordination of of care better and better management and uh, and coordination of care which will require more general or better more and better general managers rather than fewer I think it, although it's crude, it, it's certainly being used as the as the basis to start conversations with with trust now. And so, if if they haven't got a a, good, a decent excuse, they're in trouble. And and that that was, I think that you know that was part of the case with Liverpool was they didn't have um, all the right business cases in place to back up their recruitment. Um, and uh, yeah, other other trusts may have gone through the better better governance processes or have better reasons for for their increases yeah i think that, yeah that, although it's kind of at first you know for us who are very invested in it it does seem like can be quite simplistic but actually you've got to you know sort of remember that nhs england is is looking over its shoulder at, at the treasury and you know they're saying well you've you've got this extra cash last year and you did, you know, other public services did and the NHS specifically got a top up. So it looks very bad for NHS England to then go back six months later saying, oh, actually, all of our kind of local services are projecting huge deficits. And we've mentioned quite briefly the impact on other priorities, but I wonder if we can get into that in a little bit more detail. What are some of the other things that could be affected by this kind of I suppose this um, intensified pressure to get the to get the finances right yeah I, ju I just noted down a few before we started I'm, I'm sure it's not exhaustive but I was thinking so on, on the waiting list there's there's less extra money to buy independent sector activity and the, at, the, at the summit I was being told that um, providers like Ramsey were turning down work that they were taking before uh, partly as well because the, the private the the market for private um, paying patients has picked has picked right up, um, and so there's that there'll probably be less IS activity um, on the strikes. It, 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 I think the sort of ballpark pig figure for for what could settle the strikes if if the if this pay deal that's currently being voted on would go through and the junior doctors one might might be sort of five six billion a year, and and so that does mean the budgets are really are really tight and it and they've got to find that extra money as well as balance try and balance the plans and so that doesn't look great for capital and tech budgets um which have suffered in the past when when this situation's arisen um and so the new hospitals program could 
um, suffer further delays and uncertainty, I would have thought, um, which obviously isn't good for productivity in the longer term either. And then on the workforce plan, it, that, that that just looks extremely difficult to try and make funding commitments for um, if you've if you if ICSs are struggling to balance their budgets, you've got to find this extra money to end the strikes. Um, there's and and I suppose there's this ongoing debate about well, do what what do we really need extra staff? It, can we afford to pay for? Can we afford to recruit lots more staff? When is that is that the real problem? Mm. I was talking. So I was, I was talking to one trust CEO and he was making the point that, well, he was suggesting that, that the NHS England had sort of said, sort the money out and carry on, you know, do the electives. And they were the kind of the two big things, because obviously, in theory, there were a sort of slimmed down number of priorities for this year. <laughs> but it'd be interesting to see if that those priorities become even more slimmed down. Um, so, you know, this CEO is suggesting that maybe they like NHS England now you know, as long as you get the finance and you're kind of hitting your elective targets, they will care less about the, you know, even the the four hour standard. And um, there was some other targets around bed occupancy. And you can, you can quite, you can sort of see those just sort of falling by the wayside um, as long as you're hitting the really key things, you know, the top priorities. That's that's certainly the sense I I was getting from people at the summit. It's it's about the waiting list, hitting your budgets, and um, coping coping with these strikes. I was thinking one of the the big things, and we've written about this before, is but the the issue of the BMA rate card, and not just for the strikes, but the rate card that was brought in um, around elective work, because you know the union recognises that consultants are being asked to do more work. And hitting elective elective targets really does depend on the people doing doing the work. So I wonder, are I suppose our chief execs kind of struggling with that kind of having to pay more for people to cover the shifts, take on weekend work, for example. I've, you know, I'm sure you have as well. But so many trusts are running extra extra clinics, extra sessions of over weekends, um, just to try and make a dent in waiting lists how are they balancing that um getting staff to do the work and also kind of keeping a cap on the money the the intel i've picked up on that so far is that actually the the pensions changes a, a couple of months back have made a real difference to to consultants and 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 mattered more than the than the rate card um because it, actually on a sort of day-to-day -day level just paying the rate card doesn't doesn't get them a lot more money per shift um whereas the the the, the pensions changes so the increase to the to the lifetime allowance and the annual allowance actually have lifted the ceiling quite a bit and 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 that was the real blocker for a lot of consultants um you're saying they now yeah, people are now willing to do the more consultants are willing to do the work without demanding that rate card they're doing the, in the waiting list initiatives without asking for the rate yeah that, that that was that's that's my general sense yeah that that was that was the main problem interesting as well talking about the overall establishment and staffing because people actually can get a lot more work out of their existing staff you know then or, or only in that case only consultants but um showing how they would still be holding the um the pay bill might be going up because they'll be doing more electivity elective activity but um but they won't be increasing the uh, the establishment 
I'm sure that like James Illman isn't on with us, but and he he has a lot more conversations with people about this issue. So so perhaps get him on another week. <laughs> yes, I'm sure we'll be coming back to that. Um, as well, I think it's kind of it's the the thing about goodwill, and we've talked about this quite a lot. But people just it's just asking people to do it now just kind of isn't enough. I think after the pandemic and this renewed pressure, and then the strikes, it's sort of just yeah people want want another incentive um and i think just kind of generally um maybe maybe one for you henry but how do you get a sense of well what a leader's going to do about it are they just having to just get on with it and kind of you know just kind of bite their tongue and kind of try and try and come try and you know uh find a resolution with their sort of regional team i suppose do, do about what are they going to do about the finances? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a mixture of uh, what they're told to do. And um, yeah, I, I think it's this kind of very difficult situation that a lot of them are in because there's so much pressure from above. Um, and there are those questions about you know, people saying, oh, we're, we're being asked to put um, efficiency saving rates of like 7% in our plans. Um, to make them kind of balanced because you can say oh well if there's a 40 million pound gap if we just increase the saving rates to cover that off um but there is this kind of uh, you know sort of um unspoken understanding that that, that won't actually or, or is in, let's say it's incredibly unlikely to happen um for a trust to save seven percent of its budget um and so it puts the leaders in a very difficult position because they have to get this they have to kind of sign up you know draw up these plans um, and then there's an open question as to, as to how realistic some of the plans might be. I think the other thing is, um, and you saw it at the start of last financial year, um, which was also a very messy planning process. Um, but there were only, from memory, five ICSs um, that said that said we're not going to do break even at the start of the year. Um, and that, that's not obviously that's a small number and the, the interesting thing to see this year be if the number at the start of the year um who say we, we can't break even is going to be higher and then the, then there's a sort of safety in numbers and the other thing is probably to, to, it will be interesting to see which ics is saying that because if it if it's ones that are like were seen as kind of financially relatively okay and sort of well performing then it's kind of a different conversation to if it's a handful um in places where there's historically been financial problems i think we should the the, the financial year 22 23 is just finished as well so we should start getting some sort of annual reports out soon and and so it'll be interesting to see you know one what the what the sort of final position was to what the what the cash balance was at the end of the year compared to the previous year and um what kind of what what the breakdown of the savings made was so how much was non-recurrent and so we'll get a better idea of what the sort of starting point is for 23 24 and to what extent the system's going to be underwater right i think that's a good point to to wrap up this week thanks all very much for for joining me and Thanks to listeners as well for listening to our podcast. We're available every week on our website and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And do let us know if there's something you'd like to hear us discuss. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.